If you're visiting with us online, we're glad to have you. This is our Sunday morning class on 1 Samuel. Start with a little bit of review. Saul, what tribe was Saul from? Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin. How is Saul described? He's tall. Tallest in the crowd, head and shoulders above everybody. That's how he was described physically. I'll mention it again. I've mentioned it before. One of the things that, to me, says the Bible was not written by man is the lack of physical descriptions of people. When you read men's writings about people, you see a lot of descriptions, and you just don't see that in the Bible. The only time you do see anything about someone's physical description is is when it has something to do with the context. And in this context, of course, Saul's chosen to be king, and he is head and shoulders above everybody. That's like the big guy should be the king. So just wanted to mention that again. Where was Saul when it was time to announce him as the king? Going to put him forward, this guy's your king. Where was he? Where'd they find him? He was among the baggage. He was the guy that was sitting with the baggage, making sure everything was secure, I suppose. Or maybe he was just hiding, but that's where he was. Yes, he was a handsome man. Glad you pointed that out. He's good looking, he's tall. It's like he's got everything, uh, but we'll find out that maybe he was lacking in uh, some pretty important areas. Bud? I don't remember where I was at, but I think it was a preacher's retreat where someone was describing Paul. They said he was short and had a hook nose. He was ugly. (laughs) Yeah. And I said, how how can you say that? He said, look at me. (laughs) He was evidently Jewish, you know. I, I have read a, a secular description of uh, Paul, the apostle, and that's, that's what they say about him. Whether or not that's accurate or not, I don't have a reason to doubt that, but that's, that's what we've got with him. Uh, by the way, what does Isaiah say about the coming Messiah? Looks like a root out of the ground. He's like a root out of dry ground. He goes on to say there's nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. Uh, so it's interesting that we see Saul, the first king of Israel. Big, tall, handsome guy. And then there's Jesus who wasn't given any kind of a body that we would go out. Check him out. And I I wouldn't want the job of choosing who's going to play the part of Jesus in any of these uh, programs. But this guy who's playing Jesus on The Chosen, I think he's a pretty happy medium. There's, he's not really... All that great looking, he's not ugly, but there's just, I, I think to me, he looks like he just might play the part. And of course, Jesus is in heaven right now, hearing us and hearing me and saying, You don't have a clue, are you? And he's exactly right that you would be saying that because I, I don't have a clue. But that's the way we work. God gives us minds, and in our minds, we, we fashion some kind of a picture of what people look like. Well, you'd, right now, if I said picture Saul in your mind, you would have a picture of somebody, something. And you might not trust it very much, but you, you kind of have to put something there. And so, 
I remember years ago somebody said some kind of a, a game about psychology or something. So, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to don't think about a white horse. Don't think about a white horse. And, of course, when you say that, there's no way you can't think about a white horse. You cannot think about a white horse. I don't know. But you picture a white horse. What's your horse look like? You, you have an idea for your horse, and I have an idea for mine. We have an idea for Saul. We have an idea for Jesus. Uh, but aren't you looking forward to the day when we'll see him face to face? That's, that's coming. So Saul is chosen as king. But who chose Saul? God chose Saul. Not the people. God chose Saul. And it seems to me he chose someone that they would look at and say, yep, that's, that's the king. He chose him according to his looks. And I didn't put this into review, but everything about Saul, well, what's your opinion of Saul at the outset? How does he appear to you? How does he seem to you? Tell me something about his character that you see in the initial introduction to Saul. Anything at all? What's that? Insecure. 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 And with that insecurity, there seems to be a sense of humility. If it's actual humility or, or false, but there's some kind of humility. Did I say him? Marty? Yes. The people wanted to kill those that didn't want him to be king. And he protected them. Yes. Bob's pointing out, of course, he's getting ahead of us. I don't know if we're allowed to do that. But. He says, after the first battle they had to fight, there were uh, guys in, 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 among Israel that wanted to kill all those who had been previously against Saul. And he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. That's not how we're going to behave. So there was, there are things about him that seem to show he was a very humble fellow, at least at the outset. Uh, we'll see where that all goes. Background. He comes from a family in Benjamin, the smallest tribe, the least family in right. the whole tribe. So that's what he's been living with his whole life. Right, exactly. And why is Benjamin the smallest tribe here in him? Yeah, Israel wiped him out. They were almost wiped out in the Civil War because uh, there was a scandal. And all of Israel assembled against Benjamin and just about wiped them out. And they had about 600 guys left. 600, that's not very many. And so that's, that's the history of the Benjamites. And here's Saul coming from the Benjamites. So, number five, what was the response of the people when Saul was announced king? Do you remember anything about that? It was mixed. Some people said, yeah, we want him to be our king and the scriptures describe them as valiant men. The valiant men said, yes, this is going to be the guy. And there were some other men. How were they described? Do you remember? Worthless fellows. Worthless fellows. It's written into the text who did not want him to be king. That's the last part of chapter 10. Certain worthless men, verse 27, said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. So apparently he knew about that, but he did not say anything. He kept silent. One, one more thing, just adding to this idea of his humility. All right, there we are with our review. Let's do some reading. And I'm 
we might get into chapter 13. I don't want you to get too excited ahead of time, but I'm just saying we, we might make it into chapter 13 today if we, uh, if we get our readings done because I'm skipping a, part of, a brief part of chapter 12, as you can see from the, the layout there. So who would like to take chapter 11, verses 1 through 8? Who wants to read that for us this morning? Any literate person will do. All right, there's Janie. And then 9 to 15... Who wants to do that? All right, D.W. And I'll tell you what let's do right now. Let's just read those two texts and, and talk about them for a little bit and see what's there. And then we'll move on to chapter 12, 13 to 18. That'll give you some time to, to get your courage up to decide, I'm going to read today. I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 13 to 18. All right, 11, 1 to 8, and then 9 to 15. said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the ox. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So that they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and when they came out as one man, when he must have been at Beret, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that, that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. They were sacrificed. They, there they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Right. Starts up. And Syria. What does... Nahash want to do to the men of Jabesh Gilead? 
gouge out their right eye. Why in the world would you do a thing like that? If you're a right-handed swordsman, which most would have been, be hard to fight without your dominant eye. Maybe that's the reason. Who knows? Maybe he just he just had a thing for right eyes. But he wanted to gouge out the right eye of every. So what did the Gileadites do? All right. Give us give us a week to think about this. And of course Nahash consented. It doesn't say why, but you might think, well, okay. It's gonna if I go ahead and try to push now, it's gonna cost me something. I'll wait and see what they say after seven days. And so what do they do during that seven days? We got a brand new king. Let's see what he can do. They send messengers, says there in verse four. And they spoke to Saul all the words in the hearing of the people. And how do the people respond? They wept. Oh man, we got a crisis. It's, that's just like a presidency, isn't it? When does your first crisis come? As soon as you put your hand down from being sworn into office, there's your first. Here you go, Mr. President. It's on a silver platter. You got a crisis. And somebody wrote. I read it recently, said, adulting is just one crisis after another. Somebody else said, no, adulting is multiple crises concurrently, all happening, of course, at the same time, which life is, life is filled with chaos, and we're just trying not to be part of it. We're trying to make order out of it. That's what God does. God brings order. When he spoke the universe into existence, every, everything had order. Sin came in, everything with the disorder, and God, and, and if we cooperate with him, we're trying to bring order back all the time. And now here's disorder. Here's an evil man, Nahash, wanting to put everybody's eyes out. So what happens with Saul? Look at verse, it's, it's okay to read the text. I'm not sure if I made that clear at the beginning of the class. It's okay to read the Bible and see what it says. That, that, yes, yes. The one-armed man says, <laughs> the Spirit of God came on him. <laughs> Take a look at that there in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, wait a minute, what? He's the king, and he's coming from the field behind the oxen. That doesn't sound very royal. He said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? They related to him the words of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul. How? Mightily, when he heard these words. And then what did he do? He became angry. Will the Spirit of God sometimes make us angry? Righteous fury, righteous indignation. When we see things that are wrong, we get angry about it, that's, that's a good kind of anger, but be careful because the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. That's what James said. So be careful about your anger, where it's coming from. But uh, well, you know, Jesus was angry at the 
Yes. Well, he was angry in a synagogue when, he, when there was a man there with a withered hand. I think it's Mark chapter 2. People didn't want him to heal him because it's the Sabbath. You, you can't heal a withered man's hand on the Sabbath. Well, what's the Sabbath for according to the law? What are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? You're supposed to rest. If you've, got, if you've got a withered limb and somebody, see, you're getting all kinds of, yeah, <laughs> and somebody is able to make that limb whole, will that give you rest that day? Well, of course it will. We don't normally think of it like that, but being injured, that takes away some of your peace. There's pain involved. There's difficulty. There's complication. But if you can be healed, there's rest. There's peace. And that's what Jesus was trying to do for that man. They didn't want him to do it because it was the Sabbath. And he looked around them with anger. And the text says because their hearts were hard. And hard hearts, that's one of the worst things we can have is a hard heart because you can't be changed. But Saul... Has the Spirit of God come on him? And I read this and I think, well, that's God. Saul didn't have anything to do with that. He didn't control the Spirit of God. God came on him and his anger increased because of this injustice. And so what's he do? It says in verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Aren't you glad presidents don't do it like that today? I don't know. Maybe that'd be better. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. So, so God is helping Saul in his kingship. He's got a role as king. God's going to help him do that. This is what I'm going to do for you. First, I'm going to come on you in my spirit. I'm going to make you angry. I'm going to have you do this thing where you cut up these oxen and send it out and say, you better come to fight or else this is what's going to happen to your oxen. And, and all the people have what happened to them? The fear of the Lord comes on them. So they assemble for battle. And what happens in the battle? Who wins? The good guys Good guys win. The next morning, it says in verse 11, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp at morning, which struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Now, just a little bit of history here. Go back and check because it's... These kinds of things, they're all connected. And I think it does us good to understand some connection. Go back to Genesis chapter 19. This is a, this is a way back from 1 Samuel. And really not that far actually altogether, historically speaking. But Genesis 19, we read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And who are the only people saved when Sodom and Gomorrah is, are destroyed? Lot is saved, his wife is saved, and his two children are saved. But what happens shortly after they get out of town? Mrs. Lot, for whatever reason, looked back 
And that was the end of her. So we've got Lot and his two daughters. And it says, verse 34, On the following day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, that you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. What's happening? These girls are going to have children by their dad. And they do. Verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So who is Israel fighting in Saul's first battle but the Ammonites? These are the people who are the offspring of Lot and that incestuous relationship that his daughters conspired to do. Uh, it's, not, it's not always pleasant what we read in the Bible, is it? But it's always the truth. Another reason, I look at the Bible and I think this has to be from God. No man writing these things would put such sordid scandal in it that reflects so poorly on the people about whom it's being written uh, unless it was God telling us what the truth was, and that's what God does all the time. So he'll show you the truth about yourself too. That's not always fun. All right, where are we? First uh, Samuel, right? Here we are. Any, any questions or observations about this battle with the Ammonites? All right, let's go to chapter 12 then. And I need a reader for 13 to 18. All right, Larry's got that. And then chapter 12, verse 19, and the first verse of chapter 13. All right, Gabe's going to read that. Excellent. Now, before, before we do these two readings, I uh, just want you to know about the first part of chapter 12. This is Samuel coming before Israel, and he says... Uh, I want to ask you guys, have I done anything wrong? If, have I not been straight up with you guys? Yeah, you've been straight up with us. All right. Let me, let me tell you, since you're saying I've been straight up, this is, this is where we're going with this. All right. Chapter 12, 13 to 18, and then uh, the last part of chapter 12 and the first verse of 13.
Okay, thank you very much for reading. So, we got Saul confirmed as the king, and we've got Samuel's warning to the people. What's the warning about? There you go. Yeah. All right, this is how you wanted it, but here's but you better do this right. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. And what they say? Maybe it's not so much what they said, but it's when they said it. Look at verse 16. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. God's going to do something right in front of you where you can see it. Isn't this the wheat harvest? Everybody look forward to the wheat harvest. Man, we're going to eat good. Wheat harvest, that's time for celebration. I'll call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So when it rained and thundered and the wheat harvest was ruined, what did the people say? Verse 19. Man, we messed up. And we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And then what does Samuel say? How many times do we read this in the Bible? Samuel says, don't be afraid. Do not fear, verse 20. God just showed them something to make them afraid. He wanted to make a point to them. I'm God. I'm the one you rejected as king. You chose Saul. Saul can't do what I just did. I just did that. But here's the deal. Now that you've chosen Saul, you better follow him. And you better follow me as you follow him. And here's my testimony that I'm serious about this. I'm going to ruin your wheat harvest. I'm going to do it at the word of my prophet. So God was glorified. Samuel was glorified. And the people were put in awe of God. And then Samuel says, don't be afraid. Verse 20. Do not fear you have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Okay, wait a minute. You've turned aside to ask for a king. We know they've got a history of turning aside. Why doesn't God just wipe them out? But instead, he says, All right, <laughs> we're going to keep going with this. Don't be afraid. Just follow me. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. And this is where we are. We're, we're talking about God dealing with a nation, but he, he does... The same thing with individuals. He deals with individuals. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but have you ever done anything stupid and ungodly? And I won't ask how recently the last time was. But this is what we do because we are who and what we are. And God says, don't be afraid. Just keep following me. Just keep following me. Just keep following. Keep my word before you. You're not going to keep that word perfectly. In other words, you're not going to do it, but I want you to keep that word before you so that every time you do something right or wrong, you're going to measure yourself against my word. My word's going to be the standard for your life. You won't keep it. You won't do it right. You can't, but in your weakness, you're going to always be saying to yourself and to everybody else, God's word's the standard. God's word is the standard. The reason there are denominations in the world 
is because people have not kept God's word as the standard. That's why there's a religious group of every different stripe because we want to do what we want to do. And sometimes we get to be like that too. By that, I mean we have our traditions that are not necessarily God's traditions. And we've got to be careful to delineate between our traditions and God's traditions because if somebody wants to introduce something that we're not used to and we think, well, that's the way God's always had us to do it. Well, it might not be the way God's always had us to do it, but it's the way we do it. And don't get those things confused. That's what the Pharisees did. They started considering what they chose to do as what God gave them to do. What if, uh, what if somebody suggested, what if everything changed uh, and somebody said, well, what if we started meeting at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Uh, would, that be, would that be better if there was some great economic upheaval and things were really tough and there wasn't enough gasoline to go around or the streets were not safe like they were in Haiti? Just imagine being in Haiti and you're thinking, I'm, I'm going to go to church. Well, you might be killed on the streets. Oh, really? Well, hmm. What are we going to do about that? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe one of the things we can do is, is change uh, our meeting times to one time in the afternoon or something, whatever it might be. And somebody says, well, that's not scriptural. We're supposed to meet at 930 and 10.30. This is what I'm talking about. 9.30 and 10.30, is, that's just our, not necessarily an arbitrary choice, but it's a choice we make. Always be ready to make a distinction between the things that are God's teachings and the things that are, that are our ways of fulfilling God's teachings. Don't give up something just because somebody says so necessarily, but, but be careful of why you defend what you defend. Only defend things that are of God, and everything else uh, can be subject to change. But uh, how many of us would like to gather together? It's a graveyard. You know, that's what the Christians did in the, in the first century. Uh, they, they, wait, they went in the tomb, down in the catacomb. In, in the catacomb. And, you know, that's not, a, it's not a very good place to go to worship God, but it was a place. And they made the decision to do that because of the situation that was facing them at that time. Right. So uh, when we uh, think about COVID, we think about smallpox. I don't know. There's a lot of things that are going to keep us from doing what God said, but he never tells us to do anything that it's not possible to do. Right. Roll with punches. Maybe that's what we are, are reading about here. But at any rate, God says, follow Saul, follow me, regardless of what you've done, and how angry you think I am with you, I'm telling you, don't be afraid. We're going to work this out. Verse 22, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. We should keep saying it to ourselves. God is good to us, not because we are good, not because we deserve it, but it's because he is good. And he deserves the glory. And when people see how good God is to us, give him the glory. When they see our works, our good works, like Jesus talked about, people will glorify God. Peter mentioned the same thing, and Sir Peter mentioned it because he heard it from his Lord Jesus. 
I'm sorry? Yes. They were obstinate. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's always lots of people that love him and respect him and worship him. He's not asking for perfection. He's asking for loyalty. Yes. <clears throat> loyalty. Faith. Faithfulness. Just like in a marriage. You can't be a perfect husband. You can't be a perfect wife. But you can be a faithful husband. You can be a faithful wife. And that's the difference. God is asking for faithfulness. And all down through the ages, he's been looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. That's exactly what Jesus said. God's seeking people out. Not Jews, not Gentiles, anybody, everybody who will worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus said God is looking for such people. He's always been looking for such people, as Steve has pointed out. Remember how Israel came to be. God did not choose a nation. He chose a man. And he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through your people, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And so we've been blessed through the nation of Israel, but more particularly, we've been blessed through the seed who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came into the world as a Jew under the law. So he's always wanted everyone and that's what it's coming down here among Israel. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he's done for you. But if you'll do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Hmm, pretty ominous words. So how old was Saul when he became king? 30. A few of us in here have gone beyond age 30. I remember how dumb I was at 30, how clueless. Yeah, really, I think a lot of us are. And I think, okay, Saul. What, what training has he had to bring him to this point? We don't know of anything. He hadn't been to the, the uh, Israeli, Israeli school of kingship or anything like that. He's, he's 30 years old. Now he's the king. What are his qualifications? He's a good-looking guy, head and shoulders above everybody else. At least he starts out with some humility. We'll see how that goes. So anybody got anything as we move on? Yes. And, and think about how all that turned out. What if, what if Nahash had not come to Jabesh Gilead and threatened them with pulling out their eyes? That crisis would not have been there. Saul would still be plowing, but now he's seen as a great military leader. They've had their first great victory through Saul, and the people are behind him 100%. And they said, now that we've had this great victory, go get those guys that didn't want to be uh, under his kingship and let's kill them. And Saul says, nope, not going to do that. Nobody's going to die today. And another aspect of his leadership, that, that's, to me that's very telling about something good, some character quality that's there that somehow gets lost later on. But... 
I think about uh, Solomon when the two women come before him with the child, and each claiming the child was hers. And, and he, what did he do? He used psychology, really. <laughs> he said, "Okay, well, we'll, uh, you know, we'll split into half. And give half to you and half to the other." So, you know, and the one that owned the child, or because it was her child, she said, "No, you know." Give it to the other woman rather than kill it. And then one of the other woman was saying, Well, go ahead and split it in half, you know. Yeah. That's so, pretty easy to tell who's monster. Yeah. But I'm saying, though, the wisdom of Solomon was known uh, all over the world. And uh, even when the Queen of Sheba came to visit, she was amazed at the wisdom that this, that he was even a young man then. Well, I say fairly young, you know. He was in his 40s or 50s, probably. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just chuckling about that. But uh, there's sometimes uh, uh, what we learn is not just what we learn, but it's why we learn. Okay. And there's application here. That's that's what we need to be seeing. There's application. God says. All right, you wanted a king, you got a king. That was wickedness. You've, you've added to all your other sins. And actually, they're the ones who use those words. We've added to all of our other sins. He, he wipes out their wheat harvest so they'll see his power and that he's not particularly happy with them right now. And, and they, they cower. They are in awe of his power and his judgment. But then he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. And... And they go on from there. He says, you just make sure you serve me. Keep my word before you. All right, so chapter 13. Uh, anybody got anything as we move on or before we move on? Need to read the first. Well, we've already read verse 1. I need somebody to go, let's see, 1 through 7. Let's set the scene here. 1 through 7 just right now. Who's got that? Boy, see, this is an ambush. You weren't ready for this, were you? There's a hand. Who is it? Is that Jenny? All right, the lights. Anyway. Thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at of Benjamin, but he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All of Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were there summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, and they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as, this, but as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, 
and all the people followed him trembling. Where am I supposed to go to? Just through verse 7. Okay. So Jonathan stirs the hornet's nest. The Philistines are in Geba, and he goes up against Geba, and the Philistines hear about it. So verse 3, Saul blows the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. We've got a fight on our hands now. And what was the nature of the Israelite outlook on what was happening? Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Kind of get that picture? Everybody's scattered out and hiding. Don't want the Philistines to catch us. Some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead, but as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Trembling. That's, that's the nature of their situation right now. Scared to death of the Philistines. So it says in verse 8, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. Now it doesn't tell us, you can't go back in the text and find that point where Samuel said wait seven days. But he's telling us here that that's what Samuel had said. Samuel had said, you go and you wait seven days and I will be there. Why seven days? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But Saul is told to wait. And the question is, will he wait? Or will he not wait? What happened with Nahash? God gave him a great victory. Will he give him a victory this time? Well, You'd like to think that they would look at what happened with Nahash, the Ammonite, and say, you know, God helped us out there. I'm sure he'll help us out here as well. I know. You'd think they would go back even farther and say, you remember what happened to those Egyptians? And you remember what happened to Og, the the king that we slew when we came out of Eden? No, not remembering all that stuff. They're trembling. So we wait seven days, Samuel doesn't come. So Saul says in verse 9, uh-oh, it's not looking good here. Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So that's what Saul does instead of waiting for Samuel. It's time for us to quit. We've had one bell, right? This is probably a good place to quit. But I want you to think about where we're stopping. And by the way, I want to tell you again, it's okay to read ahead. You're not cheating if you read ahead, and we'll come back, Lord willing, to this point next week and start at chapter 13 and verse 10 and move on from there. Everybody good? All right.